This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Managing Director at Air United, Graham Mathy. He discusses the process of hiring and firing managers and why clarity in this is important, why the high performance environments he's been in have always had an edge, as well as some of the work he's done around recruitment of staff and the importance of soft skills. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please make sure you share it with friends and family. I hope you enjoy. Graham, I know that we've riffed for probably 15 minutes there about loads of stuff that would have been really cool for the podcast. So we've got to see if we can reenact it now. But before um, we do introductions and stuff, how are things uh, up in, I'm going to say sunny Scotland. I don't know how sunny it is, but how are things in Scotland? All okay? Always sunny. So I stay in air and I keep telling people it's the worst part of living here is the palm trees waking you up, swaying in the wind in the morning. So it's a bright sunny day, even though it's a little bit chilly, but uh, all good in here. Thanks. And good to, good to catch up with you, Michael. Look forward to this podcast. Perfect. So yeah, I'm really excited for this. I think um, from a personal perspective, you know, you see in in the news and stuff, the, the club owners, club management, managing directors and stuff on 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 TV discussing occasionally what happens behind the scenes in the club. But I don't think we ever really get a really good insight to, I guess, some of the, the processes behind it, but also just an understanding of what those people actually do from a day to day. Because it's easy to give them a bit of stick when things are going wrong, but then you probably don't see all the hard work that goes in behind behind the scenes. So I think, firstly, if you could just explain who you are and then give us a bit of an overview of, of um, what you do and how you got to that point. Sure. So uh, my name is Graham Mathy. I'm the managing director of Air United to operate in the, the Scottish Championship. Um, I've been in the role for, for two years now and um, it's probably a great question. What does a managing director do? So I probably find myself asking that question more often than not. Um, but no, I, I think a um, big part of the reason I joined Air United was there was an owner, uh, chairman and, and owner who's a successful local businessman, operates a, a successful local construction company. Um, and I think he had a real clear vision about how he wanted to try and literally build the club, you know, invest in a lot of infrastructure projects. And I think what was maybe missing was somebody that was able to, to look after the sort of day-to-day running of the business, you know, both in the kind of football and the non-football side. Um, and that was an exciting opportunity for me. I, I live locally, but um, and I guess some of the things you want to touch on here are some of the things that were really interesting to me. So what does a club actually want to achieve? You know, is it able to actually articulate that pretty clearly and put it down in some form of document? And then ultimately, can it set about making decisions against that that vision and, and actually trying to see something uh, over a period of time and, and, and the club moving forward? So. Um, loads of variety in my job at the minute, um, overseeing the kind of on and off field uh, progression of the football club day to day. We're two years in, and as you can imagine, and I'm sure we'll, we'll elaborate on, it's been a, a bit of a roller coaster, a couple of highs in there, but also some uh, some tough days as well. So it's uh, it's been great, and I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, no, I think there's going to be loads of fascinating conversations and, and points to go down. I think a really interesting one to start off with is when when you look at the the club as a whole how much of it is is consisted of what happens on the pitch and performances and player and management thing and how much um consists of it kind of off the pitch with you know fan engagement the business side the financial side which there obviously uh, is an aspect too so yeah within your role how much of a consideration of both of those things so I think it's got to be both, um, but I, I think it's fair to say, and anybody that works in any level of football will know, whatever happens on the pitch drives so much. 
So we've just uh, we'll announce our accounts in, in, in the not too distant future, and you know we'll announce the record turnover the clubs have ever had in the last twelve months. But that comes in a season where we reached the quarterfinal of the Scottish Cup and finished second in the Championship, you know, and that was the highest league finish in, in over twenty years. So um, by by extension, you know, shop sales are up, commercial incomes up, hospitality incomes up, um, you know. Ticket sales are up, and and we get the most prize money that we've had probably ever. So um, everything about that that turnover, I think, was was helped by the team performing pretty well on the pitch for the majority of last season. Um, but I, I guess there's other aspects. So you know, season ticket numbers were up, and and that was coming off the back of a season where we avoided relegation literally on the on the last day. So there was a lot of fan engagement in there. There was a lot of sort of trying to articulate a positive plan and a positive way forward for the football team. So, um, and I suppose to a degree we're finding the opposite this year, that we had a bit of a tougher start to the season. We're not necessarily where we want to be on the pitch. Crowds are down a little bit. Um, you know, shop sales are down a little bit. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's been trying to figure out how we can maybe do more of the kind of uh, fan engagement piece and some of the some of the other bits that can help us to to continue to operate successfully as a business when the, the football team isn't performing the way we would ideally want it to be on any given day. So um it's definitely both, but I, I say one drives the other and, and I suppose it's trying to keep an eye on both uh, at all times because you never want to get in a position where you're always relying on the team winning on a Saturday for your business to be successful. And that's the um, I guess the first conversation I had with the chairman that was one of his considerations that in his industry and construction it's all very linear you know you, you can tender for your project you get given a tender you, you kind of know the five or six or ten or twenty things that might go wrong in your building process you build the thing and you get paid for it whereas in football it's uh, you can put in all the foundations and the building blocks you want and your team loses 3-0 on Saturday and suddenly everybody's looking at you totally differently and your, your whole business model maybe takes a bit of a turn in another direction so that's the that's the fun and the challenges that come around in my football club, I guess. Yeah, and if you're Tottenham at the minute, you've got every player under the sun, either injured or suspended, which isn't ideal from from my perspective. But they're playing nice football, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. Um, I guess in terms of a strategy point of view, then you mentioned, I guess, the owner had a plan of, of what he wanted the club to be, and I guess for you as coming in in a senior role, your role is going to be able to take that on board and come up with a strategy of how we can disseminate that to both internal staff and let them have their say, but also say this is the values we're going after, but equally external and say, you know, this is what we want to be as a club and this is what we want to be in the community, et cetera. How did those conversations come about? So how did you begin to have those conversations with the owner in terms of understanding you know, really clearly what he wanted this club to be moving forward. And then what was the process for you of being able to get everyone on board with that vision and uh, help them understand that, you know, if you're going to be part of this football club moving forward, these are the values that we want to exhibit from a day-to-day basis? It's a brilliant question. And to be honest, there's not really an easy answer to it. So um, the first conversation I had with the owner, I got a real, I didn't know him, he only lives. 10 minutes away from me, but I didn't know him at all. But I got a real picture that he was a guy who had high values. Um, you know, he, he was talked in ambitious terms about the club on the pitch, but equally as much about the, the benefit that the club has off the pitch to the local community and, and, and what he wanted to see there. So in his mind, and, and I've never seen or heard anything since it's, it's changed my mind on that, it, it was very much about building the club with two facets. So it was the work in the community and how the club could be a real positive impact in this town but also being ambitious and, and, and sort of sustainable and, and having some sort of success on the pitch too. 
Um, so I guess the, the, the first challenge I had with it was, and, and, and it was pretty clear, I don't mind sharing this story, but it was pretty clear when I came in, look, we've had three or four managers in the space of the last 12 months, don't want to change another one. So, you know, I'd love you to find a way to work with the current manager, um, you know, gives you a period of time to have a look at the way things are working. And then if you want to make a change, you know, in six months time or something, let's have a conversation. Um, and I, I was literally three days in and, and we had a really bad result and a really bad performance. We were two points off the bottom of the league in December. And, you know, the inevitable sort of phone call comes, look, what are you thinking? Um, do you want to, you know, are you telling us that we need to change a manager? Um, and again, I, I don't want to speak out of turn because it would sound really disrespectful, but I suppose, and I would love to touch on this idea of, you know, the, the kind of Highland final managers, because I think that's a big part of running and operating a football club. But probably in that instance, I, I couldn't help but say, yes, I think we do. Um, and the hardest bit was then trying to figure out how we run a recruitment process for a manager where we don't actually have something written down to say this is the type of club we want to be. So what are we trying to recruit? Is it, and, and I, I asked the board that question, you know, the Saturday night after the game, is it literally something that we think can win enough games to keep us in the league for six months? And with all respect, we kind of keep our fingers crossed that, that he does and, and, and that's it. Or is it something we want to build for the long term? And if it's a latter, what does that look like? So what are we actually asking that person to do and what are we judging that person against? In addition to, and it's not instead of, but in addition to just winning games on a Saturday. Um, and at that time, we kind of didn't really have that really clear, defined vision or document to say to somebody, look, there's basically your job description and we're hiring you because we, we believe that you've done these things in the past and we believe you can do them at our club with the infrastructure that we've got. Um, so that that was tough, that you know, trying to run a managerial recruitment process without that bit in place. But what we did uh, is land with somebody who was um, very much bought into growing the club over a period of time, very collegiate worker, brilliant at bringing people together across the club, not just in the, in the football department, engages really well in the community and with the, the wider staff group as well. Um, and as luck would have it, you know, won enough games for us to stay in the league that year and gave us all a, a good amount of time to try and figure out some of these fundamental questions. But um, so, that, so that was probably a challenge to it, I guess. But it was always one of the kind of key things I wanted to do as quickly as we could was actually get to the point where we could have something written down and articulate that to people. Um, and what, what we did was actually start with the staff group. Um, and it was five questions. I mean, again, there's, there's no secrets for a lot of stuff, but it was things like, you know, what defines Air United? So um, it seems a kind of fundamental question. So what what is the club about? Um, where do we think the club could be in five years? Um, what do we think we want to see on the pitch? Um, you know, what's important for um, developing players was part of it. And actually, what does a, what does a community club look like? Because most clubs at our level talk about themselves being community clubs, but actually, what does it mean? Um, so what we did was split all the staff into smaller groups and we had people, you know, working with folk they don't normally work with. So I think it was at least the cleaner was sitting at the same table as a manager and, you know, somebody from the media department, somebody else from, from admin, you know, just different parts of the club together. And we got some brilliant stuff out of that. So um, one of the core values that we talked about, what defines Air United, was unity. So Air United, for brief potted history, was, was founded in 1910. Air Parkhouse and Air FC were two teams that operated in the town, they joined together to make Air United to compete in the professional leagues. So the whole history of this team was actually started by unity, by this joining together these two teams to create one. So brilliant thing for us to jump on and say, right, great, well, Air United needs to mean unity, needs to mean sticking together, needs to mean bringing the community in as part of what we do, and that needs to be a core value of what we're, what we're trying to deliver going forward. Um, so that's just one example, and of course we do 
you know, a number of other things to talk about. Well, how do we how do we nurture young people here? What's been the history of it? And, and the history of United has been pretty good at developing players, both through the academy and, and some guys were brought in on loan or younger players were brought in permanently long before I got here. So if we want to make that part of our um, growth going forward, then let's be really deliberate about it. Let's figure out how we can be involved in it, who can be involved in it. And I guess that's probably the, the, the kind of challenge is not getting all this information onto one bit of paper that we can tell everybody this is what we're trying to do, but then figure out how we can get everybody in every department buying into it and figuring out what, what role they can play in taking it forward. So um, sorry, that was quite a long answer there, Michael, but I, I guess it's maybe just some experiences of what we've, what we've gone through over the last couple of years to get to to get to this point no that's fine I think we'll start with the unity and then go on to the the coaching uh higher stuff because I think that that bit will be really interesting so as you said there I think it's really easy and if you go any business any club up and down the country they will have values that are put on a wall somewhere and it's really easy for people to say oh yeah we live and breathe those values and in reality that doesn't happen from I guess an accountability point of view, how do you either when you're bringing people into the business make them understand that that's going to be an assessment criteria, so that you go listen, this is one of our core values. If you don't exhibit it, you're not going to be here for long, as brutal as that sounds. But two, also make sure people hold each other account to say actually, you know, these are values that we're living and breathing. And so whilst there might be confrontational conversations it's in the aid of trying to get to this point where we can unify with our outlook so you know in a media department it might be a difference between strategy of how to engage fans but ultimately what we're trying to do is create unity of approach and then unity with our fan base so yeah how do you start holding people account to those values um it's a great question to be honest i don't mind being open here um it's been really tough because um and and i'm and i'm trying i'm quite a reflective person but i'm trying to figure out um how to do that in the moment so i'll give you a couple of examples and you mentioned conflict there so that's something that i'm pretty clear um has certainly been part of some of the better teams i've worked in um and i think about a relationship i had with Leanne Dempster who was the chief executive at Hibs when i worked there as a the sporting director and George Craig, who was the head of football operations, who kind of retired for, for me to take on the role. And the three of us were really tight, worked really, really well together. Used to shout at each other every single week without fail, because we were just so passionate about what we felt was the best way to move the club forward. But we never fell out, ever, you know, because we had such a close relationship that conflict was a core part of us, our energy to, to, to move things forward. So I guess... Um, and, and again, I don't, I don't say this anything other than just really, really honestly. But I suppose when I've come into United, it's a club that, um, for one reason or another, you know, has existed for for a kind of long period of time, maybe without having that sort of plan in terms of what it's looking to do. Um, and and had an owner who was based in, in another country. Um, and and this idea of people coming together to unify in, in terms of a direction going forward probably wasn't really on the radar. A long period of time where they were trying to cut a lot of costs to keep the lights on, for example. Um, so me coming in and introducing this this idea of conflict, so that we're kind of, you know, fighting against each other to go forward and having all this energy has been tough. Um, and, and look, I've made mistakes in there. I've brought people together and said, look, let's just put everything on the table and let's have a bit of conflict and let's get through it and let's move on. And it's just blown up into, into um, oblivion in, in certain areas. So, um, so the, but, but there is, and that, that is the kind of ongoing challenge here for. For me to figure out, right, now we've got this 
document. Last year was amazing because we were so unified when we were winning games. It was great. Fan base were on board. We were moving in the right direction. We were kicking the backside or 90 minutes or 180 minutes of football away from, from getting promoted. It would have been an amazing achievement for the club. No being in the Premier League for 43 years. Um, it's almost easy to say you're united when stuff's going well. Um, now's the challenge that's coming when things aren't going so well on the pitch. Are we still together? Are we still united? Are we still finding ways to work with each other? And are we still aligned to the goals of the vision that we set out, you know, 18 months ago? Um, and, and that is a challenge, I think, in leadership of, because um, you mentioned it about putting things up on a wall. So I did the, the um, English FA technical directors course and you go to loads of brilliant, you know, environments and see high performance and one of the one of the phrases it kept coming up was your values you need to live it not laminate it. So there's no point in just sticking it up on the wall and putting a nice shiny colour around it and, and saying that's what we do. You need to see these things lived out. Um and, and I suppose I'm challenging challenging myself to think, right, can we identify really clear ways where we can show unity or we can show determination or we can show energy or we can show um you know that we are nurturing to our people and our and our players and and, and that type of thing as well. So um, yeah, that is the fundamental challenge in leadership, and I suppose it's about being able to articulate it when it when it does happen, and 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 letting people see what that means and what it looks like, um, and then still being able to deal with the stuff you talked about there, the challenge and the kind of um, confrontation, all the stuff that you think probably needs to happen until you iron out some of your your challenges and you move forward together. So um, yeah, all of that in a context of a dynamic sport where you might lose three 0 on Saturday is no easy. But, um, but yeah, I, I do think that's part of the challenge of leadership. And I think the most successful clubs and the most successful businesses do that well. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good question to align the two, I think. Yes, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because I, I read an article around Eddie Jones and there was a lot going on around the England environment. And I guess it was a really um, partisan viewpoint of Eddie Jones. Some people really loved him and loved the environment he created um and others by the sounds of it despised it and didn't want any part of it um one of the things you mentioned there i guess was the high challenge and, and the way that that can present itself when i look at eddie jones what the article said that in, i think it is seven years of england he had 17 different assistant coaches mm-hmm. and so when i look at that my immediate thought is that's a high turnover number one and mm-hmm. two that potentially it's kind of a you will survive there for a definite amount of time. You're not going to be there for a substantial amount of time. That might be because the high challenge drains you and you end up needing to go to an environment, or it might be that you actually just can't cope with it and go, I can't cope with this level of high challenge at all times. You mentioned there, again, some of the the, the best teams you've been around have that high challenge, both, I guess, in the boardroom level, but I'd imagine around the, the training ground and, and the performance stuff. Why do you think it is such a necessity to have that little bit of an edge in the performance environments? What what do you think it gives you further down the line on the pitch or when you're trying to progress a club that it's necessary? Do you know one of the things I, th- I find football a fascinating industry and the fact, and we'll touch on it because we spoke about it uh, before we, we recorded, but um, is the role of the manager or the role of the head coach. So in our industry, we, we bring in somebody who's probably, you know, the most, if not one of the most highest paid people in, in the building, certainly in, in Scotland at the level we operate at. Um, and we basically make that person accountable for every decision that's ever made in that, in that football environment. And then if they lose four games, they'll always sack them and try and bring in somebody else. And I guess that that challenge bit, and, and I'm relating it because I've had experience of where um, very few people want to challenge a manager. 
or very few people want to say anything that might be contrary to what they think the manager wants to hear. Um, and that's where I think we miss a trick because, um, I mean, I've certainly been open with, with loads of staff and I made a decision um, alongside our head coach this year to bring in a player called Aidan McGeady. Um, so Aidan's got 95 caps at Republic Island, played at the highest level, you know, English Premier League with Everton. And he's a high-challenge individual. And he challenges me more or less every day on stuff because he thinks things could be better. Now, I enjoy it. Um, I don't agree with him all the time, but I just love the fact he's wanting to come in and sit down and have a cup of tea and say, do you know what? I don't think we're doing right here. I don't think we're doing right there. I think we need to do better here and I think we need to do better there. So I then challenge him back in return and say, brilliant, what does it look like? How can we make it happen? You know, now if he's telling me we need to spend money on it, it becomes a bit harder because we're, we've not got a huge amount of resources here. But there's certain things he said that you go, do you know, right, okay, so who do you need to go and speak to? Because we're not having a situation here where you're coming up with ideas, you're telling me and then expecting me to go and execute it for you. We've given you a staff, a role as a staff member, and I've given you a certain amount of autonomy to be able to go and make it work. So your ability to do that is going to rest on your ability to build relationships with people, um, you know, influence people and actually show them that this is something that's going to add value to what we're trying to do. So um, so I, I do think it comes back to two things. One is relationships. So, um, and, and I guess that's something I've learned a lot over the, the, the years of experience I've had in it, that my, my relationship with George Craig and Leanne Dempster at Hibs was so good that we could have literally said anything to each other and never fallen out because we knew that it would always come from a good place and a, and a, uh, and a desire to take the club forward. And the same is honesty. Um, and I will tell this, this, this story um, about Paul Heckenbottom at Hibs because that, that's probably one of the biggest regrets I've had. I couldn't have got him more time uh, as being a Hibs manager because loads of things that he was doing was, was, was so good. But he phoned me 18 months after he, he left the job and he was studying, doing a, quite an academic poll, but he was doing, a, doing a, a, a study and it was basically on the hiring and firing of managers. So he was asking some unbelievable questions about, look, tell me about your recruitment process. Tell me about the shortlist. Who else was on it? Why did I get the job? Um, you know, Did you get what you thought you were going to get? Was there any areas you thought I could have been better in? What was the stuff you thought I excelled in? Um, when did you sense things were starting to go wrong? Could we have done anything different at that point in time? And then effectively, why did I lose my job? You know, now there's some pretty big questions to ask in there. And but it was a it was sat and spoke for about an hour and a half together. Um and again, I, I drove away from that meeting saying, I wish we'd have had that conversation when he was in a job. So my next evolution um with, with Lee Bull in the air, we have had those conversations and we have them reasonably regularly. So, but I can have them because I think we've developed and built up a really good relationship where he knows I want to support him and I want to do everything I can for him to be successful. But he also knows that I'll be really honest with him and him with me. So there's times I've said things or did things and he's pulled me to the side and said, look, I'm not sure that was right. Don't think you should have done that. Don't think you should have said that. Not sure that's right. Loads of times I've done the same with him as well. But um, but it's built on those two things. It's built on that relationship and it's built on honesty um, and the fact that we genuinely think that we're trying to do the best thing to take the football club forward. And we might at times disagree on what that looks like, but... When you've got a relationship and you've got honesty, you can say things and you can take these things away and you can reflect on them. And sometimes you may um, agree and, and make a different decision to move forward. And other times you might stick to your guns because you're pretty convinced you're, you're on the right line. So I think that's important. Yeah, it's a fascinating one. I don't know if you listened to this book or read this, but there's a book called The Cubs Way, which basically went over uh, the Chicago Cubs when they won their championship for the first time in God knows how many years. I can't even remember, like 60, 70 odd years. Um, and there's a player in there, I can't remember his name, but he was a catcher. And he basically had shifted from playing staff to, um, I think, coaching staff and was reading through his old reports. 
and it, like there was a common theme about something that he was doing that that basically was holding him back and he said to the coaches why didn't you tell me he said if you'd mm-hmm. been honest and told me I could have worked on it he said but um and and then the GM at the time um basically realized that actually being in a position to have these honest conversations with players and with staff was the starting point of what they actually needed for people to go and work on their stuff. And I think it's fascinating what you're saying there. It's like, actually you can challenge one another on, on the direction that you're heading, but then there's an accountability piece, which you've mentioned thereafter. It's like, well, that's not all down to me to go and fix this. So if you're saying you want additional training time or whatever, that's down to you to go and, build relationships with the SNC coach, with the physio department to go and facilitate that. So I agree with you. Let's do it. How are you going to do it? And then there's a bit of action and accountability on the back end of it. What I find too much in in a lot of sport and a lot of football is people will go, ah, this is crap. And then they'll go, why don't we do this? And then they kind of sit there and go, over to you now. You're the boss. You go and do it. Whereas I actually know if you want to say that it's not, if it's crap, that's absolutely fine. That's no problem at all let's hold each other account for a few actions to get this ship going in the right direction. And it, it seems like what you mentioned there, that's probably the, the integral bit is you, you've got the honesty and the trust with the people around you, but ultimately it also comes down to the fact that you can start holding each other account and saying, well, I can fix this bit, but you need to go and do X, Y, Z to get this better. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. And do you know, this is a bit of a challenge at the minute. So we've set ourselves a target and again, how openly we've been on this to, to try and get United to play in the Premier League for the first time, time in 43 years. And that, that's not going to be done within 6 to 12 or 24 months. It's going to take a period of time. But I guess the thing I'm asking is, so what are we going to do day in, day out to help us grow, knowing that it's never going to be linear, knowing that we're going to take some punches in the face and everything else, but have that that real direction to say we want to be an established Premier League club. Um, so, and accountability is massive in there. Um and, and I guess it's maybe I'm trying to find the sweet spot here between not coming across as a guy that comes in every meeting challenging people to do more. So they come in at five o'clock in the morning, they leave at four o'clock the next morning. You know, that's not what, what, what we're sort of asking for. But what we are asking is that every single action that we take and decision we make adds value to what we're trying to do. So it might be a little bit different to other people. It might not. Um, it might involve just a little bit more time or a little bit more effort or a little bit more something in one aspect that we're going to really go after and make it as good as we possibly can. Because, I, again, I think it's relevant to speak in this direction, Michael, but I, I look at clubs like Brighton and Brentford and, and think, you know, I'd love United to become a Scottish version of them. So they started out at a lower level with a really lofty ambition to go and get to become established English Premier League teams. Um, they were clear from the beginning what they wanted to do. I think they were pretty clear in terms of the thought process they wanted to have. So there was a real innovation culture. There was an ability to rip up the rule book and say, we're not just going to do what everybody else does. And I'm probably finding myself saying the only way that United can become a Premier League team is if we either outthink people, outwork people, or make better use of our resources than other people at our level, because we're not going to outspend anybody. That's just not in our gift to, to do that for a club of our size. Um, and I guess it's trying to, as a leader in that environment, create that culture where people understand what that means. So let's try something. And you know what? See if it doesn't work. Let's be all right with that. Can we learn something from it? Is there any bit of that thing that we tried that we could actually go and evolve and make better and try it again? Try it again and try it again. Um, you know, can we get people having different types of conversations? So I'm trying to think of some of the ones we've spoken about. So, you know, player development. Everybody wants to develop players. So how do we do it? 
you know, are we are we willing to say let's make it really clear and concise, have really clear development plans and programs that are reviewed and analysed for players that might be 23 or 24 years old that we think we might be able to sell for X amount of money to go to the Premier League in Scotland or, or potentially League One in England because that's the market we're, we're in. Um, you know, how does that link with the sports science department with this? You know, say we need to be operating at this level or this distance or this high intensity running. Great. Can we still do that, but maybe incorporate a bit of the technical in that or a bit of the tactical in that? So it was that we've, we've got all the boxes ticked, but we're still actually taking as much time as we can with as much input as we, as we possibly can to make these individual players better, to help us create more money to then put into the player budget further than only to help us get promoted to the Premier League. That's the kind of strands I'm trying to link together at the minute. Um, and as you said, we keep seeing all along as well as trying to win the game on Saturday. So that's the uh, that's the ongoing challenge, isn't it? So we have one last question before I come on to the the, the manager stuff, which is how have you cre- um, developed the ability to zoom in and out? Because I imagine that's one of the hardest things as a leader to have that strategic overview and go, right, this is our vision, this is our loose guide of where we want to go, this is the direction I'm heading, I'm putting the ship in. But that ability to then zoom in on a bit of information or a bit of challenge that you go, right, that's a small detail, but that isn't right. So actually I need to be able to get in on this at this moment in time and affect it now, because otherwise it's going to maybe divert us in a different direction. How have you developed the skill to be able to do that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Again, I think that is one of the ongoing challenges of, of leadership in this in this space. So, and I do think, um, speaking to somebody else about this earlier on today, I think sometimes results can cloud your judgment one way or the other. So last year when things were going well, we probably weren't having the same level and depth of conversations as we are now when things aren't going so well. And we should have been with the value of hindsight because um, there are things that we could have been doing when things are going well that might have set us up better for this year and going forward to to make sure that the results maybe haven't gone as, as badly as they have in, in, in certain weeks this year. Um, so, yeah, and, and I do think it's, um, I, 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 do you know what, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm challenged at the minute to understand that there are that there are things that you can do and measure which which you believe will make a difference going forward. So I've mentioned the individual player development plans is one example of that, um, which is very sort of structured, very much written down, measured, etc. cetera. Um, and you can almost take that too far and be too much about the measurables and, and the processes and everything else and forget about the environment and the kind of, um, you know, the relationships that you've got with people, the relationships the staff have got with each other and got with the player group. So I think that's part of the balance in the skill is to understand what value does maybe making it a little bit more um, organised, isn't the word, but a little bit more formal, let's call it that, and, and more recorded and more measurable against actually just making the relationships better and doing more social time together, bringing players together, creating more opportunities for connections with each other and having that environment being good that helps you to, to, to generate results as well. So um, I'm probably, as you can probably um, tell, like I'm, I'm somebody who thinks a lot about stuff. I'm really, really reflective and, and, and um, I know I annoy people by that because I'm forever asking questions, what do you think about this and what do you think about that? But um, I think so. I've got good relationships with the chairman of the club, the vice chairman in particular, are people that I speak to on a weekly basis and I, and I speak to the manager on a more or less a daily basis. And I think some of these things come out from those conversations. So you're asking about when you know you need to be right in the middle, when you need to be away. I've said to the manager in five or six occasions this year alone, listen, you need to tell me if you think I'm too I'm too involved here because this is your football department. It's not mine. I've maybe got a wee vision of what I think we should be doing, but I don't know as much as you do because you're on the pitch every day working in the environment and everything else. If you think I'm annoying people, just tell me. 
and I'll have a couple of weeks where I step back or I go again or I go in one direction or another. Um, and I think it's maybe, to answer your question, probably as much about understanding yourself and being able to get really good feedback from other people and really honest feedback to say, here's an area you're going after that's probably not going to make that much difference in the grand scheme of things. Um, actually, this is maybe a bit of a bigger issue that we need to tackle together over a period of the next few weeks. So um, I suppose getting other people's perspective on life is, is as important as having your own vision and your own perspective and your own understanding of how you think things can improve. That's a really nice segue onto my next question. So we've obviously mentioned a little bit around management and and whatnot. And I think what you've elaborated there really is that that relationship you have with a coach is really important because they can feel like you're overstepping the mark or you're too absent and the ability for them to say, listen, I think it would be good for you to come down the training ground a couple of times over the next couple of weeks just to see if you see what I see or can you bugger off for a bit and just let me crack on and come back and give a wider reflection. So when you're looking at that uh, relationship and that process and you know you're, you're sat down going right these are the type of candidates we want to go after what does that process actually look like I guess if you want to go reverse where you want to start with the firing and what the firing actually looks like to then go through what a recruitment process actually looks like for a club I think that'd be fascinating for everyone to hear yeah so I, I've kind of um, been involved in this quite a bit and it's always evolved so I'll maybe start with the last or the next evolution if you like um, and, and that was an experience from the technical director's course when we went to see Harlequins. So you're talking a lot there about, in this whole podcast, about vision and, and leadership and, and direction of travel with the club. So the thing that really impressed me about Harlequins when we saw them was we met the chief executive, we met the director of rugby, we met the head coach, we met the first team captain, and we met a guy whose title was wrong, but was player liaison. So he was like, player liaison was like the cultural glue in this, in, in this organisation. But we met them all separately. And they all spoke about the same vision, the same values, the same reason, the same purpose that they had. They were all really, really clear about it. But we asked um, the director, sorry, we asked the head coach a little bit about where he felt his role was. So he talked about um, the recruitment process for bringing in, what he was inheriting, where they were trying to go, why he was brought in. And it was only on reflection he said, you know, the, the interesting thing is they didn't really ask me too much about rugby. They asked me loads about my ability to build relationships with people, my ability to have honest conversations with people, my ability to get information out of some of the players or, or give them a bit of autonomy on things. There was all the soft skills they really focused on, how my relationship is with my family, with my kids, what I do when I'm when I'm not working, when I, when I come to work, when I leave. Um, and he said, all these things, now I know, but, but they didn't really want me to say, I'm in at seven in the morning on my way at 10 at night. You know, they, they wanted me to know how I, what I do to switch off and how that gives me energy to then bring it into the environment and be my best when I'm there. So then we asked the director of rugby, look, tell us about the recruitment process for the head coach. He said, well, I didn't really ask him too much about rugby because we kind of knew that. He said, that, that was all our research. We'd seen his career. We'd seen what he'd done. We'd spoken to loads of people that he'd worked with, you know, played under him and stuff. So that stuff wasn't really relevant. What we really needed was the soft skills to help us move the club in the direction that we, we wanted to take it and we needed somebody that had the skills to help us do that. Um, and, and so the, the coaching role in that club was forming part of a bigger structure, if you like. Um, whereas if I link it back to football, I, I do have this vision of most clubs and I think the, the industry as a whole, uh, and it's maybe driven by the media to a point, but we bring in this one individual and then we basically metaphorically hand him the keys to the building and say, right, Gaffer, all the best, you know, you hope you win a few games and this will be great. We think you're amazing and good luck. Tell us what you need and we'll help you out. And then they go on a run and they win a few games and everybody thinks it's amazing and they probably get a new deal. And then they lose four or five games in a row and we go, oh, he's not very good, right? Give us eight keys back, gaffer off you go. 
we'll bring in somebody else and we spend a fortune in the process paying off them, their, their staffing group they bring with them, probably half the squad they've recruited and then we need to try and spend more money to recruit the type of squad the next manager wants. And I've always found that um, in the industry a really, really fascinating concept because I don't think many other industries operate like that. Um, where most of the decision making is, is felt to be on the on the toes of one individual, um, so I guess that that's back to the kind of recruitment process. So I, I suppose the process that I've developed now has been a lot clearer on the type of individual you would like to have at your organisation. I, I would like to now add in the, the learnings from that course in, in Harlequins and say, right, let's figure out the soft skills. So somebody actually asked me today about you know if in the future, whenever you do your next recruitment process, you know, what type of manager would you want to work with? I said, well, that's probably not the right question. It's, you know, what type of support do I need to give whatever individual's there? So the way that the world looks like at Air United under Lee Bullen isn't necessarily the way Air United would look like under the next head coach whenever that happens. Um, and if and when I would move on to another environment, it's not going to look exactly like Air United look like under Lee Bullen either. So there's definitely a bit, and I, I took... Um, I did this for the kind of technical director's final presentation. It was all about the kind of hiring and firing of, of managers. Um, and I spoke to like Ross Wilson at, at Rangers. It was fascinating. He talked about um, bringing in a, a manager at Southampton. And he said pretty much similar to what uh, Harlequin said. We knew all about his football, his career, his ability to bring in young players, all the stuff we wanted. He says the fundamental bit of the interview was actually saying, look, you've now got a sporting director here. How do you want me to work with you? How involved do you want me to be in what you're doing? How you know far away do you want me to be? When we're linking in with the board, how do you want that to look? You know, because here's where how I would like you to give me information to help me support you when the board and vice versa. And I just thought that that conversation was fascinating. So it was almost setting out the parameters on day one of how that relationship was going to evolve over a period of time. Um, and I definitely feel as though that there's, there's probably a lot of clubs that miss that bit. Um, you know, we just literally bring in a manager, hand him the keys and say, look, you've done well somewhere else, so you'll do well here. Crack on, good luck, and hope it goes well for you. And I think as clubs, we, we definitely need to do better than that. Yeah, I think that it's um, it's really interesting. I, I have my opinion on this, and I could be completely wider than Mark, but with uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, my feeling was always that he was kind of that strategy overview type individual that would watch from afar and he would constantly bring in different coaching members different assistant managers to actually engage with the players to bring in new ideas and keep it fresh but he could kind of correct people as and when he needed to and I th- I think that if you look at a lot of the people that he had underneath him they seem to be a different character to what he was he my perception is was could be quite a fiery direct character you look at someone like Steve McLaren and and a few other people like that they didn't seem to be that so much they seem to be a different type of person that could you know maybe engage with players in a slightly different different way and so my my feeling since what you said there is that actually the bit that we're probably missing in in football and in the sports industry is understanding the the psychology the relationships aspects of coaches how they work and disseminate information to one another but then also what that means for players so if you've got some introvert players the most anything like easiest way of explaining it if you've got some introvert players that don't like being called out in front of a massive team meeting, you've got an introvert coach who maybe understands that a little better than an extrovert coach. It's like, no, I'm going to tell them in front of the team, in front of everyone and gun at, gun at them for that period. So I think that it, when we come back to the wider strategy, 
that's where probably the work that you're doing in a minute comes in really well because you have to have that plan of like what people we actually bring into building what effect is it going to have on the other coaching staff that's here who are we going to bring in how are they going to mirror up so then hopefully have the right dynamic of the playing staff at the bottom to allow them to flourish I think it's a fascinating thing that we're probably just really scratching the surface off if I'm honest no, we'll be there, dude. You know, you, you've taken on a further stage from, from probably where my experience and learnings have gone. But um, that was one of the reflections. And again, I don't think I'm, I'm speaking out of turn by sharing it. But um, when we spoke to Paul Hickenbottom about him, so the big reflection was um, his whole coaching team were probably very similar. Good coaches, good on the grass, wanted to be there with their sleeves rolled up, you know, coaching players, um, probably similar types of people. So collegiate workers wanted to get people alongside them and, and moving in the same direction probably more introverted and extroverted type of people and probably less emotional and more process driven. But then when you extrapolate that through the rest of the, the staff and group that we had at the time, and it wasn't an insignificant number, probably everybody was like that, including myself, you know. Um, and and I, I think back to um, Paul took over from Neil Lennon, who was probably the opposite. You know, Neil, um, really clever guy and, and absolutely doesn't get the credit he deserves for um, for, for his brain and his mind and, and, and I think how he sets things up but um, can be seen to be really emotive you know really emotional he's definitely one of these guys that when he steps on the training pitch he might not deliver the session but the, the training just lifts the tempo lifts because the gaffer's there he's got this presence and a bit of an aura about him um, so if I think about us recruiting from Neil to Paul without necessarily changing anything else in the background um, and again the, 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 most of the player recruitment that we did particularly in that, that summer that was his, his kind of only window really with us um, was probably a bit similar, you know, more introverted players than, than extroverted, um, you know, and, and I just wonder whether that was that formed part of um, some of the tough results that we had leading into the second half of that season. Was was that balance not being right, um, and and that kind of difference in dynamics that you're talking about? But I think you've articulated that well. So if you've got different types of people and different types of coaches, they can speak to the different types of characters that are within every changing room at every level of football in the country. So and that's a. That's another good learn. I'm going to take a note of that one, Michael, for my next uh, my next evolution. Well, you can do that. I won't charge you for it as you've done the podcast, so you're all good. Um, <laughs> so if you move that on then, in terms of what a grade A, grade top of top notch recruitment process would look like, what do you think that would look like? If if I said money, no object at this point, you're at Man City, you can do what you want. Um, what what would you say that that process would actually look like in terms of identifiers for from a from a footballing perspective through to characteristics yeah if i could give you the keys and say this and do whatever you want what do you think best would look like uh, it's, a, it's a great question so i can probably only tell you where, where i've come up with and, and I, I would love um some feedback um from even from listeners to, to, to maybe add to this but so the, the last one that we did at hibs particularly was great because we had an analyst who was really um proactive started looking and really trying to mine the, the level of data that we could get for the for the Scottish Premier League. So nowhere near, you know, the English Premier League in terms of some of the, the, the bits of kit and software that's out there. But um so what he did was actually take our vision at the time, which was to play, and if I forget the, the the names right here, so a kind of um high energy, um attack minded um sort of style of football. So there was four KPIs that, that came as part of that, four core KPIs. So then he said, right, I'm, I'm going to actually figure out what um, high press actually means, for example, attack-minded means. And I'm going to set up another six or eight KPIs underneath that one to say, here is what I can analyse and say, this is what this aspect looks like. So he was able to then, um, and, and the, the piece of work he did on this manager recruitment process, I thought was excellent, but um, it actually identified coaches operating at various levels throughout the world that we knew nothing about. 
um, that had teams that regularly had done had sort of played this style of football. Um, and he was able to look back and see, look, they actually engineered a shift into that style of football from what it used to be. Um, so if you if you can take a coach that's done that in two or three different places, you go right there's somebody who's quite interested, and we think we should we should maybe want to have a conversation with them. Um, so that that was good, and that, that metrics was really clear, um, really easy to identify. He'll hate me for saying that because it was a huge amount of work for him. But in terms of the way he presented the information, it was clear for anybody that read the document that. You know, the coaches that were on our shortlist had an ability to do that and had shown it. Um, you know, but we're looking at things like um, have they managed to trade players? So that's an easy one. You look back on their transfer history at the clubs and say, well, yes, they bought a player for X, sold them for Y, or they developed a player through the academy for X, sold them for, for Y. How many academy players did they have coming through? So, that, so these were some of the fundamental um, factors. And actually, had they achieved anything? Had they won something on the pitch or had they overachieved with a club that they, that weren't expected to do whatever they did? So um, it helps the things for us were, you know, competing in Europe, so you need to finish in the top four. Um, it was trading players and making some money out of player trading. It was being perceived to be the best player development academy in the country. It was playing that, that style of football. And I guess um, the ongoing challenge we're having these things is it's physically impossible to do all of them at the same time. So um, creating some form of measure that says, look, here's where we are. We're doing really well at this bit, but actually we need to maybe try and dial up this little bit, which might mean that I'm throwing in some, for example, but we'd love to develop more younger players, which means actually we might need to take a, a short-term hit on a couple of results because we're trying to blood in a couple of younger players in a certain area. So we, we did that bit back to the, the manager recruitment process. So that, that was quite clear. Um, you know, Speaking to people who'd worked with them before, speaking to players who'd worked under them, um, trying to get a view on what things what things looked like when stuff was going well. You know, Was there any fundamental change when stuff started not going well? So, um, And there was one manager who absolutely remained nameless who data showed up really well um, and he was able to make almost a bit of a prediction on was it from the outside looking at the right time for that manager to leave his post and, and three times um, our analyst at the time was saying no you know actually the performance measures in the last three or four games when they weren't winning was such that they would have expected to win in games five six or seven um, and, and it seemed a wee bit premature to do it but then you, you, you link that back into people saying well actually all he really wanted to work on was he starting 11 never spoke to the subs Never spoke to the wider squad. So you had 11 folk who loved him. You had maybe five or six folk who thought he was all right. And then you had another six or seven people in the, in the wider squad that, that didn't like him at all because he never engaged with them. Um, so on that basis, you say, well, look, we do have a squad that needs a lot of engagement in the kind of uh, environment we're in at the minute because we've been struggling a wee bit for confidence. So although his measures are good, um, we're not sure he's right for us, um, but we still make the phone call to try and see if he wants a conversation. You know, Agent says he'll have a think about it and come back to us. Three days later, he's no returned the call. So you go, you know, there's no really any point in us pursuing this much further because we're not getting a, a huge desire to come. We're, we've got a couple of amber flags that we're not really sure about. So if I take all the factors that went into that process, in particular, the data side showed up really well. The kind of personal stuff showed up. You know, there's a couple of amber flags in there. The desire to do the job was, was a zero. So, you know. Um, but then similarly, there was other people who data showed up really well, the interpersonal stuff showed up really well, and we had to do a big job to try and recruit them or, or to convince them to have a conversation with us and were willing to do it because we thought we were getting the right, the right bit on the other two. And, you know, for one reason or another, we couldn't quite convince them to, to, to move forward. But um, but yeah, so that maybe just gives a bit of an example about where it's got to at the minute. But I do think your point about um, 
having that, that, that sort of clarity on the interpersonal skill set and how that um, links into the people that are there and how that actually helps the, not only the, the staff but the players move forward um, is, is key because I have seen it done where, and, and, and in many ways we probably did that between Paul and Neil, loads of change. So in terms of style, in terms of coaching processes, in terms of um, you know, linked to uh, analysis and all of these things, they were very different in how they went about it. And that's not to say one was better than the other or one was right, one was wrong, far from it, but they were just very different. So, um, you know, maybe with the value of hindsight, it, it required a step in between, possibly. Um, and, but certainly more thought about the kind of interpersonal aspects and how that links in with others at the club, for sure. And then one last question before I do, I do my uh, my normal normal one, which is how much of a sales pitch is that to fans? So if I'm going to use Ange Postacoglu as an example, Tottenham fans were up in arms before he came, if we're honest, saying who's this random guy who's had success in Scotland, Australia and Japan, has never been in the top five league, surely we can get someone better. Turns out the the people that made the decision, whether it, he was their first third, fourth, fifth or sixth choice have probably made quite a good one in how the club's at the moment. I would imagine there's going to be a perception in media from a fan base, etc., around the appointment and and yeah, a narrative around it. So how how much of a consideration is that when you're looking at these individuals? It could be something as simple as they've managed a rival club or something as challenging as, you know, maybe maybe their the way that they speak for for the area doesn't relate. They're not articulating the same words as as this environment. It might be that you know they're, they're cut from a cloth where they're a bunch of miners and they just want to hear simple language that is work really hard, go until the last minute, and and on all those type of things which resonates better with that fan base rather than someone who's maybe got an Oxford degree or vice versa. So yeah, how much of a sales pitch is that for for a um, for someone in your position to consider the fans in that and, and the narrative that you put out when you announce the hiring? Yeah. Well, the first thing I say, Michael, is don't ever underestimate Scottish football. So I, I read quite a few things with interest about Ange going from Celtic to Spurs and uh, there was a lot of scorn initially about this guy who'd only managed in a small league, etc. So that's maybe a lesson that we shouldn't underestimate the game up here. Uh, we're punching above our weight in many ways. But um, but no, joking aside, no, I, I think you're right. And I, I guess... Um, I took an interesting thing from from Conte when he was probably in his latter stages at Spurs where he, he, he made a bit of a plea and said, you know, it's fascinating how the manager literally gets to speak on behalf of the club in every instance. So we, we do, and, and, and I guess, listen, who would be a football manager when you think about it? But we put, we put this guy up in front of the media before every game and after every game, and he gets asked to speak about a million things. I mean, sometimes it's like... You know, Wars across the world, this, this guy's asked to speak about in, in the middle of a football press conference. But Conte's kind of point was, look, you probably don't know the things I'm being asked to do aside from winning games. And yet nobody at the club actually steps forward to say, right, OK, we're going through a bit of a tough time on the pitch, but here's the things we're asking this guy to do. And here's, a, you know, how we think we're getting on across all these other things. Now, I suppose the counter-argument to that is football fans just want to see their team winning at the weekend, so I do get that. But I, I did think there was there was probably a missing piece at times between what the club is asking of a manager and what's articulated to the supporter base. So it'd be fascinating if Spurs actually came out and said, you know what, this is why we want to bring Ange Postacoglu. We know we could bring in, and with respect, another very high-profile manager because we've been quite good at that. You know, we brought in loads and 
we've not really achieved much more than, than, than what the guy before did. So we're going to go in a different um, direction. Here's the skill set that this guy brings, and this is why we think it's going to be right for the club at this moment in time, and here's what we're expecting him to do over the next 12 to 24 to 36 months, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, and, and I think it is probably continuing to keep that narrative in place for the head coach. Um, I mean, I, I can give an example, and I, I chose to do it twice, um, when we had some really disappointing results, I choose to kind of be the one that fronted up, not at the end of the game, but the, ne- the next week to say, right, okay, we get it. We're hurting. Um, we, we didn't perform well. We got a really bad result. We should have done better. Do you know, here's why we're, it's not just the usual, like we're working hard on training, we'll fix it next week, but here are the things that are going on at our club under the surface that we need to keep an eye on in addition to trying to get the team to be successful. And actually, let's not forget where we've been. So, um, I dare say, and I'm not writing this for anybody else or trying to be in any way disrespectful, but I guess if people were talking about Angie's um, arrival at Spurs, it's not that, well, actually, he's won loads of trophies everywhere else he's been, so therefore we're expecting him to win a trophy at the end of this season because Spurs haven't had a, a recent history of being able to do that. So it should be a lot about his engagement with people, the style of football he plays, bringing people together, you know, taking us on a journey. Um, you know, you'll, you'll love his openness, et cetera, et cetera, because that, that's the stuff that he brings in bucket loads. Um, and as as you've said, I think it has been interesting that the start of the season was like something out of a, a fairy tale, wasn't it, for him? It was it was amazing what he'd done. Now the team's going through a wee bit of a, of a downturn in terms of some of the, the, the results, but he still seems to have a lot of positivity around the supporter base. And um, yeah, I, I do think it's um, it's incumbent on on clubs to do that well, is to, is to really continually push back to your bit about what's the, the, the vision and the values, but keep telling people and then be able to articulate any given time where you are on all of these metrics and, and recognise the contribution of the head coach or your football department or whatever and, and helping you be where, where you are on, on any one of those facets. So um, yeah, that's the... That is the challenge, but I did I did take a bit from Conte talking about that, and I've, I've thought about that a bit. You know, how often do does anybody else in the club step up when stuff's not going well, or do we just push the manager out there and say, "Oh, mate, it's on you. Come on, tell the folk what they want to hear and fix it, please." Yeah, I think the GM role in America is an interesting one around that because obviously they have such an integral part to play with. You know, they take they do take on a lot of that that overview side and trading players and stuff. And I agree that actually, if you can almost allow the coach at times just to concentrate on the coaching and you'll deal with the other stuff surely he's going to be more effective if that's the bit that he's he's good at um and yeah the, the and stuff is for me is fascinating like I spoke to a friend of mine who was a Celtic fan and he was devastated when he left and he basically just said you'll love the football which was at the point that I was at I was like, I just wanted to be able to turn the Tottenham game on and enjoy watching it which is what I can do now but mm-hmm. you, you still do wonder whether, rather than having those dry interviews from a chairman for 10 minutes, which they obviously scripted some of the answers, whether actually at times just having the ability to go, right, we're going to ask a few questions in place of him. What, what do you want to know? And we go, well, actually, we're considering saving a bit of money to be able to do some refurbishments on the training grounds and thingy. Then all of a sudden people go, oh, OK, there seems like there's a bit of strategy in the background rather than just um, generic put it on the manager and then he has to keep his mouth shut off and he loses his job anyway so yeah it's, yeah it's an absolute minefield it's an absolute minefield but last question that I have which is if I were to speak to anyone that works alongside you or, or, or below you how would you hope they described you in three words and why oh great question um how do I, how do I hope they would and how, how do I think they would there's probably two different questions so how do I hope they would I, I'd love people to say that I was um 
a, a sort of collegiate leader. So that I want to work with people in order to go and move forward. I'd love people to say I had um, good ideas in terms of a sort of an ability to think outside the box and, and move things forward there. Um, and I'd love people to say that I was honest, that if they ever came to me asking what I was thinking, I would just tell them rather than mess around or, or, or try and tell them what they think I wanted to hear. Um, so that's how I would love people to say. Um, what do I think they'd say? I think they'd say I'm high energy at the point I tire people out, um, which is which is probably true. Um, what, what else do I think they'd say? I think, do you know, at times I think they might say... Um, you know, does does he does he does he ask too many questions at times? Does he challenge too much? Um, and and that's trying to find that balance between recognizing when people are actually doing a really good job in certain areas, but also creating an environment probably rather than me feeling I need to be the person who articulates it, but creating an environment where people are curious to not do more all the time, but just to to think outside the box and to think about how they can move things forward. So, um, yeah, what the. What would I like people to say about me? What do I think people say about me? I'm, I'm pretty convinced they're two very different things, but there you go. That's the joys of being in a leadership role, I'm sure. And listen, they're not too far apart. The reason I ask what would you like is because I think for some people, if they go and they're miles apart, it maybe is a moment of reflection to go, you know what, maybe I need to consider the way that I act around people. But listen, Graham, I appreciate you giving up so much of your time, being really generous generous with it, with uh, with me. And yeah, definitely a, a conversation that I think a lot of people enjoy, being really insightful. So yeah, thank you so much for spending a bit of your time with us. No, not at all. Thanks a lot for having me on. It was great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Perfect. Speak to you soon. Cheers, mate. Thank you for that. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.